Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 652. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Before we get into the main fiction, I just want to give you my overall quick little thoughts. I'm not telling you any spoilers on the final two episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Bitterly disappointed. I don't know what was going on. It was, and it was directed by Jonathan Frakes, Riker. Jonathan Frakes, is it? And it just like was a total different couple of episodes from the norm. Do you know what I mean? And it just didn't sit right. And it was in some places laboured with this, like into another world and. They were catching like a, like cancer because of this in this kind of the depth of this like well of a world like atmosphere sort of oh it was just a, and then it just was it seemed like like a, a cheap movie you know what I mean I wasn't impressed at all to be honest like where the, the Mandal- Mandalorian was just like just left you wanting more and more and more anyway that's I would love to hear what, because we've got Amy, our very own Amy, here at Sturgis on the day show. I would love to hear what Amy has to say about it as well. Just the last two episodes, because up until that point, I was I was digging. But it just was, you could just tell it was someone else, you know, like messing with it and just didn't, didn't, didn't sit right for me. So, tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Love by Eve Tushnet. That's coming in today's show, and like I mentioned, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. <laughs> so the story first appeared in Third Order magazine on the 8th of December 
2008. Eve Tushnet is the author of one non-fiction book and two novels, 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 Amends, which is 2015, and Punishment, a love story, 2019. This story is narrated by Tatiana Gray. Tatiana is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen and the audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards but hasn't won a single damn thing. She went to New York University and lives in Brooklyn, New York, and you can find her at tatianagray.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Love by Eve Tishnet. Published July 1st, 2015. Man's greatness, even in his concupiscence, he has managed to produce such a remarkable system from it and make it the image of true charity. Blaise Pascal, Pensies. This is the story of my one hiring failure, how I made the wrong decision, and how I made the right one in the end. This happened seven years ago, when the worst of the social diseases had passed, but the plagues were still fresh in everyone's mind. So business at the restorative resorts was better than ever, and employee screenings and compliance were more important than ever. I got a lot of stick for hiring humans. We're one of the species the social diseases hit hard. In our human bodies, the plague manifests as immunosuppression. We're wide open to every nasty bad that wanders through air or bloodstream, and we can spread it across species lines. Human staff have unique advantages, though. We're clever, more in our actions than in our words or gestures. And we bring a flamboyant artistic flair to the hospitality business. So I wasn't about to quit hiring humans. I determined to do better and to implement more through pre-employment screening, which I supervise personally. I don't have any problems with ex-cons, as anyone who read that piece on my arrest last year knows. Hard-drinking, high-living Trin Hatchell spends a night on the rocks. I love that headline. I have it scrolling across my office wall over the cocktail island. Many of my best staffers have a few criminal convictions. Yeah, even at a class joint like Octaviana. Why is this? I'm not sure, but here are a few theories. Ex-cons are grateful for a second— or 15th, chance. We had to make one girl wear a mask because her face was drug-scarred like meteors had hit her. But she'd gotten clean, and I'd never seen somebody work so hard in our massage lab. Or the exact reverse. Ex-cons are hedonists. Some of my crew are hard-drinking and high-living, for sure. So they think creatively and can anticipate a client's needs. They think like the client. Ex-cons have invented one of our most popular drinks, the Hurricane Sinara, six of our eight exclusive live-action games, and the formula for our famous lava bath. They love their work. They come in early and leave late for the fun of hurling fire at laughing, dodging clients, or performing their prison dramas on the snow lanai. Ex-cons know how to please people. You either adapt or go under in most prisons. Ex-cons can read people, let me know when a client will be trouble, can mollify and flatter or give just the right amount of sass to make the clients pleased with their own tolerance. And yet, 
ex-cons can also be crazy freaks with impulse control issues who will run a kitchen or a laundry on stimulants and bravado until you fire them. I love these guys because if you intimidate them just once, you're their girl for life. Or at least until you fire them. So I don't worry when somebody's last job reference is a laundry boss at an off-world pen. In this particular case, the guy, we'll call him Masao, even had a prison advantage. He'd done time with one of my favorite sous chefs, another human we'll call Harold. Harold remembered him and vouched for him. He said Masao was, and I quote, humble, patient, adaptable, professional, and kind. As you can guess, this description set off a few alarms for me. Humble, patient, that's perfume, I told Harold. But how is this guy supposed to be both professional and kind? Do you mean he gives the impression of being kind, or what? Harold took my meaning immediately. I wouldn't worry, he said, although looking back, I seem to recall that he hesitated. I failed to sniff the warning in the air. He's adaptable. He'll be completely professional. Yeah, not reassuring. I grilled Masao. We're under quarantine, I pointed out, in case he'd missed the big yellow signs and warning sense. Tell me what that indicates to you. He searched my face briefly and said, Maintaining a professional attitude is the key to the prevention of social disease. No gratuitous acts. No actions taken to succor or shelter anyone who is not a paying client. Good. That actually isn't right. You can help the staff here, bosses and co-workers and subordinates, as long as it's done from your self-interest. I'm helping you now by telling you this, and there's no danger, but you've got the basic idea. Just in case, I gave him my standard spiel on avoiding plague. Humans as a species are sloppy with the truth. That's part of what makes us good at serving in and managing restorative resorts. But it also means that 80% of what we think we know is a mix of misinformation, wishful thinking, and masochistic paranoid fantasy. Even with the plague, which threatens both our lives and our social positions, humans don't always bother to get the facts. So I laid it out. Once the infection becomes active, humans have a 50% survival rate and a near 100% contagion rate. We are most likely to spread the plague through contact with other humans, but we are capable of infecting or activating all of the known susceptible species. The earliest form of plague found in humans became active during times of heightened levels of oxytocin. That early variant was all but eradicated in our sector when the new, more virulent form arose. This new strain of plague is more similar to the kind suffered by most other susceptible species— Little is known about which chemicals or brain states it responds to, which is why we can't screen for infection during the hiring process. All we can do is watch transmission patterns to learn what to avoid. There's no vaccine, and despite what half a hundred rumors will tell you, there's no cure. Controlled experiments found that merely extending help to another person will not transmit or activate plague. The aid must be offered as a form of kindness to use an awkwardly unscientific term. How do I know if... if I am being kind? Masao asked, ducking his head anxiously. He shifted his feet in the restorative tea washing over the floor. 
It doesn't actually have any chemical effect for humans, but we still find it soothing, maybe from watching other species enjoy it. You don't, I told him. No one can be sure how much love, I guess you'd say, will activate the infection. That's why it's imperative that you serve others only within the parameters of your job. We make our living on the appearance of kindness, and our clients trust us to know the difference between the image and the substance. I lectured him some more, and he responded with expressions of gratitude and compliance. I saw in him a mix of good manners and bad luck, my favorite industrial compound. I sent him off to do the blood tests and brain scans, and when they came back clear, I made the hire. For many long months, I forgot about him, or noticed him only fleetingly in the interstices of Octaviana's daily crises. Over time, I accumulated evidence that he and Harold were a couple. They shared that unmistakable cloud cover of surreptitious communication and unspoken connection. When something went wrong, they glanced first at one another, involuntary looks of alarm and concern. At times, the space between them seemed to pulse with longing, its emptiness making their intimacy more obvious, like the vase you suddenly see between two silhouetted faces. That worried me a little. Not because such liaisons are against the rules. They are, but they always happen, and I don't have time to be the sex police. The kitchen where Harold worked, and the service staff where Masao worked cleaning rooms and calling down more exotic requests to room service— are both very high-stress arenas. The staff there work better when they know they can get the erotic and affectional release they need. But sexual connection among humans is volatile. It can be a mutually fulfilling exchange, need for need, strange longings satisfied, or it can sharpen longing, intensify estrangement, push us to acts of great courage and great stupidity, as my best friend from resort school liked to say. Love is just courage plus stupidity over time. I know of seven other species with at least one language in which the term making love is a euphemism for sex. And if any of my employees' sex made love, we might lose our quarantine status and bring activated plague into Octaviana. So, in between clearing a noisy invasive fungus out of the laundry and renewing our spacewalk permits— I found time to interrogate Harold and Masao. They persuaded me that they understood the nature of the plague and were aware that they would lose their jobs, their freedom, and possibly their lives if they went beyond a mutual exchange of wants. Many people, on hearing the difficulties involved in running Octaviana, ask, why don't we just put in universal surveillance? Our clients would revolt if we did. Would you want your every action public if you were at the finest restorative resort in the universe? We cater to all our clients' legal needs. And just about everything is legal here, including many that break their species' strongest taboos. So no, I can't just put in surveillance. We'd go out of business the very next day. I kept them on. My second bad decision. A while later, a minor celebrity came to Octaviana to uncoil. He was a human named Sadrach Kelly. Pretty much nobody's ever heard of him, but he was a big deal to the humans in our sector. He'd instigated an award-winning political prank, and so he was not only 
demi-famous, but demi-admired. Kelly was also a short, violent, obnoxious drunk. Within his first 16 days at Octaviana, he had caused me seven separate headaches. He tried to swim in the lava baths. What about heat-proof guests only is so hard to understand? He pitched a screaming fit because we didn't stock Osti Spumanti, an earth liquor even I had never heard of. He tried to make Masao, his room attendant, perform one of the very few acts that are illegal, even in Octaviana. And this isn't even counting all the trouble I didn't hear about. When I went up to his suite to deal with the Osti Spumanti situation, it reeked of disinfectant, which he also complained about, but that was Masao's problem, not mine. It was with a great and terrible glee, then, that I learned that he had been stripped of his fortune and remanded to Sector 6 prison for tax fraud. The agents who came by to bring him in requested a full perp walk, and I was more than happy to oblige. We put out a news release and offered our in-house transmission center to both media and law enforcement. I noticed that someone, probably someone who'd met the foul little rodent, had put floodlights all along the route they'd take to the transport carrier. A crew of the human employees asked for, and received, leave to line up along the route and spit on him as he went by. This particular form of humiliation is almost unique to humans, and often misunderstood by other species. Cross-culturally, spitting is more likely to be a sign of affection than disgrace. That might be why humans are so sensitive to it. If somebody does it with intent to insult, well, for humans, in the near-Earth sectors especially, it's one of the worst things you can do. I'm not sure why. Maybe because it reminds us that we're only humans, or maybe just because it reminds us of home. But I'm very sure Shadrach Kelly deserved it. I was giggling as I stretched out in a chaise lounge in the lobby to watch. The agents were having a great time, too hamming it up, joking with each other. Mob scene in the lobby. And then they got to Kelly's suite. And he wasn't there. I got to watch on my phone as they went from room to room, looking under the bed, opening the tank, pulling back the curtains. They stopped joking. I stopped giggling. They started threatening me with a charge for aiding in the escape of a fugitive. Our lawyers got on the phones, and I put... Headache number eight on Kelly's account. It was a PR disaster. They did find him, eventually. He'd been smuggled onto the transport carrier and shipped off to the pokey an hour before his ritual humiliation was scheduled to begin. I had news and entertainment, compliance education, everybody and his brother's cousin's parakeet yelling at me. Masao was one of the first people I interrogated, since, as Kelly's attendant, he might have seen something. And he confessed immediately. I couldn't put him through that, he said quietly. You have five seconds to save your job, you broke-brained patchwork donkey. Why'd you do it? They were going to spit on him. He spat on me! Masao actually had the gall to grin. Yeah, he spat on everybody. But still, that doesn't make it okay. He was already going to prison. They didn't have to do it like that. You, oh, oh no, oh, you, sorry, sorry, Schumann. You did it out of pity? 
He didn't say anything. I grasped for straws. He didn't bribe you. Tell me he bribed you. With what credit? I don't like firing people, but I'll do it. I really don't like firing good workers, and up until then, Misao was one of my best. Which is why he'd gotten stuck with Shadrach Kelly in the first place. But he had to know it was coming. When did you do it? Only six hours ago. Don't worry, I'm not contagious yet. Yeah, you have one hour to get out of my resort and off my planet. I'm calling your ID into the quarantine center. What you do next is up to you. The quarantine trackers are very efficient. And compliance in the resort sectors is near total. He had the grace to flinch as I keyed his number in and sent it. I stared at him. This quiet, patient man, his palms chapped, a big burn across his face where one of our heat-proof guests had gotten handsy. You could die. He didn't say anything. You could die for the sake of Shadrach Kelly's dignity. What is wrong with you? He said it would kill his mother to see him like that. I managed not to scream until he'd left my office. Within a few minutes, the nervous system told me he'd left Octaviana. But my problems weren't over. He'd denied that anyone had worked with him, but he was no longer a trusted employee. I had to verify his denial. Personal, in-depth interrogation turned up nothing. But I had my compliance staff search the belongings of any employee I knew to be close to Masao. And in Harold's belongings, they found something I hadn't seen since I was a little girl. No one else knew what it was. They thought it was some kind of jewelry or puzzle. A small, flat, gold box in a sunburst shape, wrapped in a thin scarf of faded purple cloth, with small white tiles dappling its length. Each tile had been etched with a mysterious symbol, and a dark paste had been rubbed into the grooves to make the symbol. A circle, connected to a bunch of teeth with the line, basically, stand out blackish-red, against the off-white of the tiles. Just the sight of it flooded me with memories of my auntie, my crazy auntie, my favorite. She'd taught me that the symbol was a key, an earth key so old-fashioned, even she had never seen one except in cartoon form or on the bone tiles of a stole. I reached out a hand, superstitious, my fingers yearning toward and fearing the bone tiles. The martyr's paste rubbed into the etchings of the key. That intense, sensual intimacy hadn't signified sex. It had been the intimacy of confessor and penitent. I fired Harold, despite his protest that he hadn't consecrated bread or touched his vestments in years. He only kept the picks and stole for sentimental reasons. He was an apostate, and he wasn't infected. He said Masao had begged him for confession, but he'd never done it. I called him into the quarantine center anyway. I don't regret that decision. Not as a business person. I really had no choice. For years afterward, I was terrified that plague would break out in Octaviana. 
the plague had such a long incubation period in both stages, the initial infection and then the activation. So Masao could have come into contact with a plague carrier before he even came into Octaviana, while he was still in prison. And even if he never met another carrier, as long as he lived, he would still be at risk of activation if he performed any unwarranted kindness in the next three years. Meaning that everyone who had come into contact with him between his kindness to Kelly and his capture by the quarantiners was also at risk of activation for up to three years. Including me. And by the way, all those people were barred from kindness for at least that long upon pain of death. We escaped that danger, but for a long time after that, I was reluctant to hire humans. These guys had made us look really bad. For the record, the vast majority of humans are competent, and as unlike Shadrach, Masao, and Harold, as you can imagine. But that night, I had a hard time getting some sleep. I lay down on the floor in my suite and turned the tea on, started to swirl at the small of my back, soothing me. But I still slept poorly. I felt like a little child again, helpless and full of remorse in a world I didn't understand. Incompetent. I dreamt of the really bad days of the plague, when I would kneel on the snow lanai and watch the guests disporting themselves and think of all my friends who were dying, their strength failing them and their, their flesh wasting away like the snow melting beneath my knees and hands. So many of my friends from resort school were dying in those days. Professional conferences had smelled like hospitals. Introductory breakfasts all started with a roll call of the dead. I dreamt of my friend Shelters from Cold Nights, the one who had said that line about courage plus stupidity over time. Shaking her scarlet hair when I made a joke through the quarantine intercom until the hair fell out and hanks onto her hospital bed and I couldn't figure out what to say anymore. The nurse reminded her not to comfort me. It would only make her weaker. I would never do anything to bring that horror into Octaviana, so I don't regret a thing. But even now, whenever I think about Shadrach Kelly, I wonder what my auntie would say. She died of plague herself, so she'd know how important the quarantine is. But she told me on her deathbed that she didn't regret the small kindness that had activated her infection. Hmm. I still think about what she would say to me now. I'm pretty sure she'd be angry at Harold, too, just like I am but I can't help thinking it would be because he might not have heard Masao's confession. Not because he might have. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And there you go. Huge thank Eve. Thank you so much. That was just fantastic and Tatiana it is an honour to have you on again and again just thank you so much for helping out so that is the, the kind of the story I was going to say that I was nearly jumping in that is it but before I'm still before getting the so I'm still into the you know the, to sleep in a sea of stars by Patrick I forget his name what a book what a, is it patrick anyway just google to, to sleep in a sea of stars it is i'm listening to the audio version i'm just lost with it absolutely loving it anyway our very own amy h sturgis hymns hello my friends it's time for another look back into genre history i hope that you and your loved ones are safe and well I was going to wish you a happy new year, but I don't know what it's like where you are. Where I live, in my country, it feels like we're sort of trapped in a long 2020. So, not the year you'd want to, to stay in for any extra moment, and yet here we are. But at any rate, in the spirit of a new year, I thought today I would recommend some podcasts that take particularly deep dives into specific topics or areas of genre history. There are a lot of them, and so I am just limiting myself to a few that I think are particularly good, but I would also love to hear from you other podcasts that you think are doing this well. I will start by talking about two podcasts that deal with major science fiction franchises. The first that I'd like to recommend is a podcast I really enjoy and appreciate, and it is called Talking Bay 94. It's the only Star Wars podcast that is devoted solely to interviews with cast, crew, creators, who have been involved in some way with the history of Star Wars. And what I really appreciate about this podcast is that the host, Brandon, really does his research, and he finds people, not just the usual suspects, but people who were involved at every layer of creating Star Wars stories, from the people who created the prosthetics to make aliens to the people who worked with training and choreographing for lightsaber duels, everything in between. And he's preserved some really important oral history, in some cases from creators who we've already lost since his interviews. And the 
thing that I appreciate most about Talking Bay 94 is that the host, Brandon, really does his homework so that his questions are very well researched and really get to the heart of any given individual's contributions to Star Wars. But he also knows when to back off and just let these people tell just fascinating stories. And of course, many of the creators who were involved with Star Wars were also involved with other high-profile, path-breaking, really important works in science fiction history. And there are stories about those other films and television series and projects as well. So as oral history of a franchise goes, you really can't beat Talking Bay 94 and how it helps to preserve Star Wars history. Now, another science fiction franchise-related podcast I would recommend is Trek Files. And this podcast, which is hosted by Dr. Trek, uh, Larry Nemechek, is part of the Roddenberry Podcast Network and is about the materials to be found in the personal archives of Gene Roddenberry. So each episode takes a deep dive into a document or related documents from those archives. And then those documents are also posted so that people can read these bits of Star Trek history. These documents are letters and memos and reviews and notes and they offer a different perspective, a different window into Star Trek history. Just to give you a sense of how a document then becomes the springboard for a discussion about history, I'll mention an episode that I recently listened to, which was a letter from Gene Roddenberry to actor Robert Vaughn. They had worked together on The Lieutenant, and when this 1965 letter was written, Vaughn was a megastar uh, portraying Napoleon Solo in the incredibly popular The Man from Uncle. The letter deals with Roddenberry attending a performance of Hamlet that starred Robert Vaughn, and then the discussion and analysis went on to connect the dots between The Man from U.N.C.L.E. television series and Star Trek in a lot of different ways. Thematically, the nuts and bolts is about how both of those series came to be, the connections between the creators and the actors, and how a whole lot of contacts were made and lessons were learned with the television series The Lieutenant, which was, in a sense, the training ground for the creators of both Star Trek and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. So a lot of interesting history there to be unpacked using the springboard of this letter from Gene Roddenberry to Robert Vaughn. So interesting podcast, each episode based on a document found in the archives of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. Again, that is called Trek Files. 
Now, another podcast I'd like to recommend is also based on documents. It is called Voluminous, The Letters of H.P. Lovecraft, and it is hosted by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. And here I want to first read the official description of this podcast. In addition to his classics of horror fiction, it is estimated that Lovecraft wrote 100 thousand letters, or roughly 15 every day of his adult life, ranging from one-page diaries to 70-page diatribes. Perhaps 20,000 of those letters have survived in the hands of private collectors and at the John Hay Library in Providence. In each episode of this podcast, we'll read one of these letters, or part of it, and then discuss it. In his letters, H.P. Lovecraft reveals an amazing breadth of knowledge of philosophy, science, history, literature, art, and many other subjects, and forcefully asserts some highly considered opinions, some of which can be upsetting. And, of course, his letters offer a fascinating window into his personal life and times. Although we've been working with Lovecraftian material for over 30 years, we still find interesting new things in his letters. And while we don't claim to be experts, we look forward to sharing them with a wider audience. That is the description of Voluminous, the letters of H.P. Lovecraft. And there are several things about this podcast that I find really useful and interesting. Uh, First, Lovecraft wrote a lot of people, (laughs) and they, many of them, were tied into various aspects of science fiction and weird fiction and speculative fiction in a certain formative time. So through these letters, we see glimpses into the amateur press associations and the pulp science fiction magazines and the way that uh, different authors would approach publication. And you see Lovecraft responding to manuscripts of a variety of writers who sent their work for his feedback, and also responding to feedback he has received from people who were his first and second readers. The hosts do a great job of putting each letter in historical context, so you know about the person to whom Lovecraft was writing, and you get a sense of how they played roles in the development of genre. People like Robert E. Howard and C.L. Moore and Robert Block and other authors and editors and publishers. Very interesting stuff. And I also really applaud how Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman do not try to excuse or look away from the more disturbing and disappointing aspects of Lovecraft's own thought, particularly racism. But there there are several aspects of, of Lovecraft's ideas that are, are difficult to swallow, and they face that head on and have some some uncomfortable but really necessary conversations about how Lovecraft's ideas connect to his work and how we should think about and address and wrestle with his legacy and influence. So I see this as a very challenging and important 
and fascinating look not only at Lovecraft and his times, but also the many, many other creators who were involved with the history of the genre and how it developed and how it evolved, and seeing them also through a different window as well. So really worthwhile material in these letters and the conversations that they inspire. That is Voluminous, The Letters of H.P. Lovecraft. Now, I'd just like to make mention of a couple of other podcasts that look at writings of specific authors. One is Grad School Vonnegut. That is a show where two literary critics, Jerry and Aaron, go through all of Kurt Vonnegut's novels. And they take deep dives into each of those works. They also have guest experts as well. For example, an episode on the novel Bluebeard from 1987 included a conversation with Susan Farrell, who's a professor in the English department at the College of Charleston and one of the founders of the International Kurt Vonnegut Society. These are really well-researched and thoughtful and insightful discussions about Vonnegut's work. So if you have been looking for an excuse to read through Vonnegut or take a really close look at one of his works, uh, Grad School Vonnegut is a good podcast to check out. I would also recommend Doings of Doyle, which is a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, of course, was the creator of Professor Challenger and Brigadier Gerard and, most famously, Sherlock Holmes. Paul M. Chapman and Mark Jones are the hosts. They are both authors and scholars, experts on Doyle. And they, and I'm quoting here, aim to promote knowledge, appreciation, and study of Doyle's writings, both fiction and nonfiction. And one of the things that's notable here is that they do not stick to the well-known works. They actually seek out lesser-known publications and really shine a light on those. Uh, just to give you an example, this past Christmas Eve of 2020, the episode was about an exciting Christmas Eve or my lecture on dynamite. That's a comic short story that Doyle wrote in the summer of 1882 and was first published in December 1883. And they post those stories that are available so that you can read along with the hosts and then get the most out of their analysis and discussion. It's like taking an Arthur Conan Doyle class, Doings of Doyle, and I do recommend it. And speaking of taking a class, I will mention once more a podcast I've already mentioned before, and that is Monster, She Wrote. Hosted by scholars Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson, Monster, She Wrote is about women in the horror genre, but more broadly even women in speculative fiction, particularly speculative fiction with a dark bent. There's quite a lot of crossover between, for example, science fiction and horror. Kroger and Anderson were the authors of the book Monster She Wrote, which I have already recommended in a past segment. And in this podcast, they focus on 
a particular work that might be a short story, it might be a novel, it might be a film, it might be a television episode. And they, again, really dive deeply into the work, its context, its importance, all to put the spotlight on women creators and storytellers in the genre. And there's a lot of good genre history in that podcast. And so, again, this is certainly not a thorough list, but I did want to bring these particular podcasts to your attention as podcasts, I think, that have a lot to share and teach us about genre history and some really interesting windows into corners of genre history that we might not see or explore every day. So again, that is Talking Bay 94, Trek Files, Voluminous, The Letters of H.P. Lovecraft, Grad School Vonnegut, Doings of Doyle, and Monster She Wrote. I look forward to joining you again with something completely different when we join together again to take another look back at genre history. Until then, stay safe and well, my friends. Thank you. Amy, I thank you. Tell us what you thought, Ian, of the last two episodes of Star Trek Discovery, because it just felt like over-the-top production, like fight scenes and everything were just like... But they come over, you know, there was like a lot of money spent, but they just come over as just like hammy, almost for me. It was just like, God, man, how we just get back to the normal stuff? It just like... Let's go out in a big bang and let's just and it just didn't work. You know what I mean? It was just, for me, anyways. It was just just slow in so slow in places and then so hyper in places and then characters doing things out of the no, like out of the ordinary and uh, you know. And I just thought it was a bit all over the shop. Just bitterly disappointed. Anyway, Ames, let us know. Anyone, let us know. Starships over at gmail dot com. So that is show 652, Put to Bed. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you will stick around for the next one in two weeks' time. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening.
cast myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.